I really prayed about whether to do something focused on on 9-11 and all that happened before. And some of what I shared with you at the beginning, at the opening, uh, when I came up to greet you, I, I meditated on that a little bit. But I really have a sense that the best thing to do for today is to go on with the message of who is Jesus. Because that's where our focus has to be. In the middle of all kinds of things, good or bad, whatever's going on in your life, in the church, in your family, in the nation, the key is to keep your eyes on Him. And that's easier to do the more you know who He is. And that's what we're learning and that's what we're studying. It's what I believe God has shown me to focus on for this year. And there are many other things I can see to get into and teach and uh, there's no lack of subjects that we could be teaching and getting into. But this is the one that keeps coming to me. And then I remember what Jesus said. If I be lifted up, I will draw men unto me. If I be lifted up. And so that's what we're about. We're about lifting up Jesus and lifting him up so we can see him much better for who he is and who he is in our lives. Matthew 16, verse 13. And when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said to him, Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other words, everybody has an opinion of who he is. But then he asked the question, verse 15. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And that's the question that God's asking us. Who do you say that I am? And as we've said over and over again, if we were to hand out a slip of paper, you'd all get the right answer by now. But the question isn't, isn't who do you know in your mind who he is, but who is he to you in your heart? Who is he to you when an emergency suddenly erupts in front of you or in your life? Who is he to you when, when you get that pink slip and find out that your employer doesn't need your services anymore? Who is he to you when you get a report from a doctor saying to you, oh, we don't know what to do. We don't even know what it is. Who is he to you when, 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 the, when, when people that you thought were so loving and so good to you, now you find out have betrayed yeah, you behind or maybe even not behind your back? Who is he to you? Because who he is to you in those times is the test of who he really is to you. It's easy to sit in church in air conditioning and heat with people around you who love God and are praising God and have beautiful music. It's easy to see in here and say, He is my Lord. He's my Savior. He's my Redeemer. He's all these things to me. But the real question is, who is He to you under the pressure? And, and, and understand this. God already knows the answer to that. And most likely people that live with you do. <laughs> it's, it's us. It's, we, it's me that's usually the last one to know. And that's what God wants to work in our lives because He wants to bring us up to a place of revelation of who He is because that's what will change you. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So we see several things from this. First of all, we see that the answer to this question does not come by study. Study will help the answer to come, but the answer comes by revelation. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. No, you didn't figure this out, Peter. Now, realize, Peter lived with Jesus. And he could have given the correct answer off the top of his head, but he said, my Father has revealed this to you. The second thing we see out of this verse is the Father's answer to the question, who is Jesus? He said, you are the Christ, the Son 
of the living God. So we've been looking over these last number of weeks of what does it mean that He is the Son of the living God. And we've spent a number of weeks looking at the fact that what that means is that's the measure of how much God loves you. Because it's His Son that He gave for you. We're not going to go back all over all that, but you need to go back and to listen to that and to listen to some of those CDs and meditate on some of the scriptures that I gave you to meditate on and look at the study God I gave you for meditating and begin to do that because it's as you do that, then the Spirit of God can begin to reveal to you what He wants to show you about how much God loves you and the proof by giving you His Son. But we're going to move on this morning to something different. Not different. We're going to move on this morning to a second aspect of what does it mean, what does it mean that, that Jesus that was given to us by God is the Son of the living God. To do this, let's turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 begins in the beginning. Does that sound familiar? That's how Genesis chapter 1 begins. So we're going back and looking at that same time that's covered by Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we're going to look at it from a different perspective, but it's the same teaching. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, that's the Word, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend or overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came as a witness to bear witness of the light that through him might, all through him might believe. He was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to then he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, if he, co- he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom or the heart of the Father, He has declared him. Wow, there's a whole lot in there. Let's go back and begin to go through this. In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John's drawing a distinction. First of all, he's talking about before everything that's known, we know, was created. Here's what existed. The Word and God. Now, so he's drawing a distinction. He said there's God, and then there's the Word with God. And we can read over that so quickly and not miss how profound this is. The word, word, (laughs) the Greek word for word here is the logos, L-O-G-O-S. There are a number of different Greek words that are translated as word in English. And this is why it's so important to be able to go back and study some of these words because the Holy Spirit did not write this in English. He didn't write it in King James. Is that right, John? (laughs) He wrote it inspired by these authors. It was written in Greek. Now, these were Jewish men, but the predominant language of the day, international language, was Greek. It was a type of Greek that was not classical Greek. It was called Koinine Greek, which was a common everyday Greek. But one of the reasons... See, God's... Have you ever figured out yet God's smart? God knows the right time to do things. Ever wonder why Jesus was born when he was born? He was born at the right time. In fact, if you look at the Greek, it says at the appointed time. So there was a time appointed for him to come. At the time he came, the government that ruled the world was Rome. One of Rome's major accomplishments was that they paved roads throughout their kingdom. And the significance of that is that the gospel could now be carried more easily than if Jesus had been born at a prior time. He was born in Palestine, which was a crossroads of roadways that went from the east to the west. He was born at a time when the predominant language was Greek, which is probably the most precise language that man has used yet. And so the Gospels were written, although they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, they inspired these men to write, and the language that they used was Greek. Now, I go through all that to understand we read it, most of us read it in English. So we see a word like word, and we think it's word like any other word that's word. But the fact that it's a Greek word meaning of logos as opposed for example another word that's used and it's used later on in these passages is the Greek Greek word rhema R-H-E-M-A and there are other Greek words but the word logos means the expression of a concept or of a principle or the full understanding of something when it's applied to a person it implies the expression of of the full character, nature, will, and personality of someone else. So let's bring it back to this verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So what that's saying is in the beginning was God, and with Him was the full someone else that is the full expression of His personality, His character, his nature, and his will. Let's bring it down to where we live. We have four children. 
One of them lives in this area, goes to church here, actually works here now. Our oldest son, Chris. We have a daughter, Emily, who lives in Texas. That's who we just went to see. We have twin boys, Matthew and Mark, who live in, Te- live in Nashville. And every time we're with one of them, I see evidence that they came from me. <laughs> and from Anita. But I see characteristics in them that are like looking in a mirror. Am I the only one that ever does that? So you look especially at your sons, and you, you know, this is an old expression, he's just a chip off the old block. All that saying was, in the beginning was you, and then you birth an expression of you. And by living with you, and by being impacted by you, you begin to have an imprint on them which causes them to begin to act. In fact, I look at a mirror now and I see sometimes my father looking back at me. I don't like that. Because <laughs> when I remember him, he looked older. <laughs> and I hear some things sometimes coming out of me. And I'll even sometimes... I need, my wife said to me the other day, she says, you know, you're doing just what your mother would have done in that situation. I didn't like hearing that because I didn't like the way she handled those situations. But when I got honest, I had to realize she was right. But I wasn't shocked by that. I wasn't shocked. Oh, my goodness, I didn't like it. But it wasn't shocking that I was saying something like her or maybe had an attitude or way of handling something the way she did. Or it's not shocking that our kids act like we do. We don't like it sometimes. But it's not, oh, my goodness, how did that happen? Why? Because in many ways they're an expression of us. So this verse says, in the beginning was God. And out of Him came someone else that was the full expression of Him. Of His character, His nature, His personality, and His will. Well, let's look at the next verse. In the beginning was the Word. So we know that the beginning was before all of this material realm was created. There was God and there was the Word, the expression of Him. That's all we know so far. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. So you've got God and the expression of Him who's also God. Verse 2 gives us another insight. He was in the beginning with God. That's a masculine personal pronoun which now tells us another insight that this full expression of God is in the form of a person. Now by person, I don't mean a human being at this point, but something that has a personality, a personality that expresses himself. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, we get another insight. All things that were made were made through Him. That's the Word. And without Him, nothing that was made, nothing was made that was made. So everything that was created in the beginning was created through the Word. The second person, let's refer to Him this way, the second person of the Godhead Everything that in this realm of existence came into existence, came into existence through Him.
Verse 4, in him was life. Not in some amoeba that divided and came out of some miry mush somewhere. Life didn't come out of some cosmic explosion. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend. That word actually means overcome it. Now there's a parenthetical here in verse 6. There was a man sent from John, from God, whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. This man came, came for a witness to bear witness of the light. God's method, because he wants us to receive something, he understands what we're like. He understands we need a wake-up call. He understands that sometimes we need a dinner bell so that we'll know to come and eat dinner. That's why he gave you a nose that senses odor. That's one of the reasons. So you could... The moment you begin to smell, your mouth begins to water. What's that? That's preparing your mouth to receive the food. I'm going to lose some of you in a moment if I go too far. To receive the food and because the juices are preparing to digest that food, but what triggers it is your nose smelt an aroma. And I'll leave it there. God prepares us to receive something that's so special, so important, that He doesn't want us to miss it. And this verse says that in order to do that, God sent a forerunner ahead, and that's John. And he came to be a witness of the light. And here's his purpose. There was a man sent from John, verse 6, who come from God, his name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. That's God's desire, his goal, is that all through Jesus might believe. He was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness of the light. Now we close the parenthesis and we go back to the original discussion. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now, light here doesn't just refer to what's coming out of these bulbs that are in the ceiling. It refers to truth, but it also refers to life. Okay. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but yet the world did not know him. Think of that irony. Just think of that. Everyone that confronted Jesus, everyone that laughed at him, the Roman soldiers that drove the nails into his hands and feet, the very Pharisees that mocked him, the soldiers that mocked him, gets even more interesting the very wood that his cross was made of, he created. 
the nails that pierced his hands and his feet. He created. He didn't fashion those nails, but the iron that they came from is of the material substance of this earth, and he created it. Imagine the restraint he had. The ground he walked on, he created. Every person that came to him and rejected him, or whatever they did with him, he created. And they didn't recognize him. But why are we shocked by that? It's just as true today, isn't it? All of you know somebody, and in most cases, we know many people, all of whom were ultimately created by him. And the life that they have came from him. And they don't recognize him. The next verse gets even more interesting. And he came unto his own. That's the Jews. And his own did not receive him. So the next time you get offended and upset because somebody that you think should smile at you doesn't, and the next time you get offended because you don't get what you think you were entitled to, maybe it's a recognition, maybe you're serving in some capacity here in the church and somebody just used you and didn't thank you. Remember Jesus. That's what Hebrew means when it says, remember looking at Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. You've got somebody who can understand what that's like because he went through that and still does today. He came unto his own and they didn't even receive him. Not only that, the Jews at least had an advantage on the rest of the world because they had a whole book that was designed to tell them what he was like when he came, the Messiah, from Genesis all the way up through, uh, through the prophets were foretelling the coming of the Messiah. They were praying daily for him to come and they couldn't recognize him when he was there. Some did. But most of them didn't recognize him. That's a powerful thought. That means you... But look at Pilate. Of course, he wasn't a Jew. But the, the irony of that, you've got Pilate standing here and Jesus standing here. And Pilate utters these words. He says, what is truth? And truth is standing in front of him. And he can't see it. Truth is standing in front of many people right now. And they can't see it. In a number of times, in the Old Testament, and then it's quoted again in the New Testament, there's a prophecy, I think it comes starts in Isaiah, that says, Your eyes have become dull, and your ears have become your eyes have become your ears have become dull, and you're not able to hear, lest you should hear and repent, and you should be healed not just physically healed, but spiritually healed also. The condition of our heart is so vital. 
So important. We talked about that uh, on Wednesday night. The condition of our heart. That's what the enemy's after. He's after your heart. To sow into your heart. To harden your heart. Because it's through our heart that we discern things. Our spirit that we discern things from God. Came unto his own. Who had all the prophecies. Of Isaiah. Jeremiah. They had all the prophecies of Zechariah. They had all the things that the, the, the Old Testament, the tabernacle of the Old Testament was designed to prepare them for him. All of these things God had given to prepare them to recognize him when he came and they didn't recognize him. Many of them, most of them, didn't recognize him. But then the question today is, do we recognize him for who he is? But verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right. Now, some translations you'll find the word power, but the word there, exousia in Greek, which doesn't mean power, it means right or authority. He gave the right to become children of God. To those that did receive him, how many of you have received him? He gave the right to become children of God who were born, verse 13, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who were born, talking about when you come to Him, how you become a child of God. Who were born, not of blood, that's physical, that's your body. When you, do this. Touch your arm, or your leg, some part of your body. All right. That part of you was born out of blood the blood of your mother's womb nor of the will of flesh is the next part of it that's because your parents will to do what it took to have you <laughs> born not of blood nor of the will of flesh but born of God the little word of That preposition is so important. In the Greek, it's the word ek, E-K, which literally means something that comes out of. So here what he's saying is that those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not, we're not talking about the physical birth, but instead born out of God. So just as your physical body was born out of your parents' bodies, your spirit man, when you come to Christ, is born out of God, which now you can understand why Peter says we have the divine nature. Just as your physical body has the physical nature of your physical parents, Your spirit man, when you've come to Christ, has the spiritual nature of your spiritual father, who is God. That's why he came. Now look at the next verse, verse 14. We're talking about who he is. And the word, that's the same word that's referred to back in verses 1, 2, and 3. And this word, this second person of the Godhead, This the full expression 
of who the Father is, His character, His nature, His will, His personality, this one that existed in the heavens before any of this was created, this word now, verse 14 says, became flesh or took on flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt literally means tabernacled. And if you've studied the Old Testament, you understand the significance of that word because back in the Old Testament, when Moses led the people of Israel out of the wilderness, one of the first things God had them do in the wilderness was to construct something called the tabernacle, which was a place of worship. And when they constructed it, they designed it in such a way that God gave them that God literally dwelt in one of the rooms of that tabernacle. And once a year, the high priest came in there and spent time in that room with God. So it represented God's being able to dwell among His people. You have to understand that God's desire from the very beginning was to dwell with us, to have relationship, intimate relationship and knowledge and fellowship with us. That's why He created man. That's why He placed him in the garden. And when man sinned and disobeyed God, He broke that fellowship. He went and now hid from God. And everything from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 on is the process of God restoring His creation, His man, back into that intimate relationship with God. And there's a progression there. God couldn't just flip a switch and start doing that. He had to be, this is how far man fell when, when Adam sinned. So we just think sin's a little thing that displeases God. We do not understand. When you understand the true holiness of God, you can see why sin separates and how it's not like you, you know, you slipped a little way. It's not like Adam and Eve slipped a little bit away from him. It took literally thousands of years for God to rebuild and reestablish things so that he could prepare for this time when God could now come and back and tabernacle among them. So what God has to go through is a series of steps by which he begins to do this. And one of the first steps is that where he can now dwell among his people in the wilderness. I don't have time to go through this, so it's an amazing study to go through and see God's heart. Look at this from God's side. Look what he lost when Adam and Eve sinned. He lost his dearly beloved. And now he's doing everything that he can to reestablish that relationship, waiting for people to respond to his invitations. And so now you have this tabernacle where, where God's got this series of tents and this whole, that's why I wrote a book on it. It's in the bookstore. And it's about how God did this and the significance of that to us today. And that, that by, by virtue of that, God could at least now dwell in a tent in the middle of the camp of His people. But He wasn't satisfied with that. <clears throat> so He had to wait until this point in time where now God could tabernacle among His people by living in human flesh. And that's what this verse means. God came to the earth and took on flesh and tabernacled among us. The next progression, we're not going to have time to study it today, but the next progression is that's why Jesus at the end of his ministry... So now we're in a place when, when flesh and blood, could, when man could now touch God. 
Because it's God in the flesh. Now God the Father is still in heaven, but God the second person of the Godhead, the Son, is now dwelling on the earth in human flesh. It means all kinds of things. It means for the first time since the garden, man could touch God and be touched by God. For the first time since the garden, a human being could look into the eyes of God and have God look directly into their eyes. For the first time since the garden, man, with a few exceptions, could hear his voice with their natural ears. Not have to discern, is this God speaking or not? You could hear him. For the first time since the garden, God could see, man could see the will of God acted out in a tangible way. But God wasn't satisfied with that. He wasn't satisfied to dwell among us. Which is why Jesus said to his disciples at the end, it's to your advantage that I leave you For when I go to my Father, I'm going to ask Him and He's going to send the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. They're all God. The third person of the Godhead who has been with you, that was in Jesus, but now will, has been among you, but now will be in you. And see, we read that and get so excited about what that means for us. Oh, God's living in us. But do you ever think of what that means to God? Go back and think about the creation. He creates this man and woman, planning for them to multiply and grow and and, 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 and inhabit the earth so that he can love them and be with them and touch them and be touched by them. Commune with them, talk to them. Be with them. And they disobey him and break this and fall so far away. Now God's taking the steps to get back to what he's always wanted. So now he's walking among us in one man, Jesus. He's not satisfied with that. He says, all right, what we're going to do is he's going to die so that I can qualify you so that I can come and live inside of you. And we get excited that he's living inside of me, God living inside of me. But you don't understand, God's more excited than you are to be living inside of you. To now have that opportunity for intimate communion with you, spirit to spirit. It says in the New Testament, don't you know you're one spirit with Christ? You're one with Him. John chapter 17, those amazing verses, starting around verse 20, where He says prayers that they may be one. Talking about you and me, those who believe in me through your word. That's the disciples that they may be one with me just as you and I are one. That they may know that you love me just as you love them just as you love me. The union that you have with God is your spirit and His spirit are fused together. Now that allows for perfect communion and communication. That's why John chapter 4, Jesus says, listen to this, oh, this is good. He says, don't you know the Father longs 
for true worshipers. This is here his heart there. He longs. He longs. He yearns for true worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. He yearns for that. Longs for that. James chapter 4 says, don't you know that when you long for the world and your heart longs, it's not that we can't enjoy the world, but you long for the world that you are committing adultery, spiritual adultery? Because what is adultery? Adultery is where, I'm, this is not what I was planning to do today at all. Adultery is where you, you, you give to someone you're not in covenant with that which belongs only to the person with whom you're in covenant with. Your heart, your love, the sacred part of you. And he goes on to explain why that's so important to him. Because he says, don't you know that the spirit who God has caused to dwell in you yearns for you jealously? Every time we give our heart to something other than God, every time we, we turn to something to trust in for some situation before trusting in God first, every time we decide, well, I don't, I'm kind of too busy today to talk to you, God, uh, but that's because I think I can handle today on my own. It hurts him. It hurts him. I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you, but I just want to show you how much you mean to him. How much the time you give him means to him. You ever thought about that? We're so concerned with, you know, how much time do I have to pray? Do I prayed enough? It's like, you know, how much time do I need to spend with my wife? Talked about that a little bit on Wednesday night. The other day we took a day just to be together because we've had such a busy schedule, even visiting family and friends. We just needed to, to be together and spend some time together. And what, imagine if I went through the day saying, well, it's been an hour. Is that enough? <laughs> I took you to breakfast. Isn't that enough? That's really going to make her day, isn't it? Isn't that what we do with him when we say, it's only been 10 minutes. How long do I have to pray? That's seeing your prayer life, that's seeing what you do as an obligation which earns you something instead of realizing that your prayer time is the thing he's been waiting for while you're sleeping. You, you imagine while you're sleeping, God's waiting for you to wake up Years ago when we, were, we went on vacation with our family down to Disney World and our granddaughter is now eight. Was, she was like three or four, I think. It was so neat because we rented a house together. You know? And the first night, you know, because they love to come over to our house but they don't, and they don't like going home. So the first morning we wake, I wake up and Anita's still sleeping and I roll over and there's little Emma standing next to Anita's side of the bed like this. <laughs> I said, what are you doing? She says, I'm waiting for Nama to wake up. 
she was standing there. Wait, I don't know how long she'd been there. She couldn't wait. She was awake early, waiting for her grandmother to wake up and just sitting there watching her, waiting, waiting. Is it now? The eyes twitching. Maybe she's going to wake up now. And I said, it's okay. She won't mind you waking her up. Ever think that God may do that with you? He's looking down at you and you're sleeping. Maybe you decide to sleep a little later this morning and skip your prayer time. And God's just waiting. 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 Not with a stick to beat you. With a heart. Longing. 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 How could I believe it? Look how far he came to provide so that you could be with him. Look what he's done. That's what all we've talked about. And the word became flesh. Wow. And dwelt among us. Let's think for a moment about that from God's side. That's what I like about John. John, John approaches what the other, dis, other gospels do, but he does it from God's side. Because they talk about, you know, Jesus coming, the angel coming to Mary, and all that from human side. But John approaches it from God's perspective. You've got the Word. Everything that exists in this realm was created by Him. Not limited by time, not limited by anything. And now he takes on flesh. Well, you and I know what flesh is like. We lived our whole life in it. At least I assume most of us have. It's limiting. In fact, the only trouble you really have once you're saved is with your flesh. I mean, just practically. You had to get it up this morning. You had to wake it up this morning, whatever you had to do to do it. You had to clean it up. Yeah, but I did that yesterday. Yeah, but you've got to do it again today. I hope you understand that. You've got to feed it. Yeah, but I did that yesterday. Yeah, but you've got to do it again today. You've got to water it. There's just certain basic things you've got to do. It needs rest. It needs exercise. It needs things that require attention. And not only that, it gives you all the only trouble you get. That piece of cheesecake doesn't tempt your spirit. That big piece of death by chocolate that they have, that doesn't appeal to your spirit, man. It's your flesh that says, you have to have that, you have to have that. We'll start the diet tomorrow. Oh, go on, go on, go on. That's your flesh. Temptation only comes at you through your flesh. Why would God take that on? You and I cannot begin to understand how that limited Him. Because it's all we've ever known. See, we talk about Jesus. That's what we're talking about this morning. You know, Jesus this and Jesus that and Jesus this. And what we're doing by and large is we have an image of us on Him as a man with two legs, ten toes, two arms, ten fingers, you know, hair, all, you know, a man like us that's God. 
And we forget what he was like before that. Who it is that took on flesh and dwelt among us. Because when you really grasp who he is that took on flesh and dwelt among us, it changes how you relate to him. He's not just another good man. He's not just a great prophet. He is God who took on flesh. And what you think of Jesus is what you think of God. How you talk about Jesus is how you talk about God because Jesus is God in the flesh. This is why he's the issue. People out there in the world, my and large, although it's changing, they don't mind talking about God. It's when you talk about Jesus. See, God can be almost anything. God can be whatever you want it to be. And that's the age we live in of toleration. Well, who you want God to be, you can have Him to be, and I'll who have God, I have who I want Him to be. The problem is when I'm in a jam, I don't want a God I want, that I've made up. That's just like, we've talked about that last year. That's just idolatry. It's just idolatry. You can, God can be what you want Him to be, and I, to me He's what I want. That's making an idol that I worship. Something I've made that now is my God. So when you talk about God, that's kind of a general concept. To some people it means creator. To some people it means the, the guy that controls everything. It means different things to different people. But, but, but when you take God and now you put Him in a flesh and blood body, He becomes very specific. I've never seen this before. I've never taught this before. That's why this be- he becomes the issue. Because now you have to deal with who God really is because we can see who He is. We can hear who He is. We can form our own image of who He is because God became concrete, tangible, specific, and dwell among us. So now we're confronted with a tangible living example of who God is and what he requires. And any time it becomes specific, it starts drawing lines. The word righteousness in Greek comes from a word that literally means to draw a line and to separate. When you draw a line, you decide which side of that line you're going to stand on. Moses did that. In one of the rebellions, he drew a line and says, choose who you're going to serve. You're going to serve those guys, you're going to serve me. became kind of important that day where you did stand. Because if you were on the wrong side of the line, the earth opened up and swallowed you. So where you stand matters. Which side of the line you stand on matters. So God 
Now is not just some general concept that people, well, I think he's this and I think he's that. God now became very specific and became a person and dwelt among us. Look at the rest, what the rest of this verse 14 says. And we beheld. That means we saw. We could now see God. We could now hear God. We could now begin to see what God is really like. And once we see what God's really like, now we've got to choose whether we accept Him or we we don't accept Him. We can't reform Him into something that's acceptable to us, which is what the world's trying to do today. It's amazing, while we were out there, I saw a video. I don't know if you've ever seen it, called The Secret. Anybody ever see that? It's this nice hidden secret nobody's ever seen before that's been hidden from us. And basically what it was is positive thinking. But as I listened to these different so-called experts, and they never gave their qualifications, you need to learn to listen carefully. One was an author. It didn't say what they wrote. One was a philosopher. One was a metaphysician. metaphysician. One was a scholar. And the whole idea was, you know, the law of attraction. That if you really believe something strong enough, anybody seen that? And if you believe something strong enough, you will draw it to yourself. And I'm listening to that, and I turn to somebody who says, that's nothing more than, than Mark 11.23 and 11.24. Whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe you receive them, and you shall. Say, I got, for God's, Jesus said, for I say unto this mountain, say, if you, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou taken up and cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he said shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he said. Therefore I say unto you, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe you receive them, go look it up, read it, it's good. It's exactly this teaching without Mark 11.22 which says have faith in God. I said this is taking a biblical principle that's true and works and leaving God out of it. I don't know why I'm off on this. So I asked this question. I said if that's true I'm so far off course right now, it doesn't matter. If that's true, <laughs> off my notes, for not course. If that's true, what if what I desire is that philosopher's wife? Because they didn't say anything about what was right or wrong to desire. What if I really desire, and did all the things you say to do, does that mean your wife's going to get drawn to me? Well, no, the person I was in discussion with said, well, no, I said, why? Why? Because you've got inside of you a sense of right and wrong. And that's what this is all about. It's about getting rid of right and wrong because you've got to get rid of God in order to get rid of right and wrong. And the movement of today, and it's not new, it's been around for thousands of years, is to get rid of God because if God's around somewhere then there's this fear that I'm actually going to have to give an account of my life to somebody and that makes me uncomfortable and since we don't want to be uncomfortable let's get rid of God 
and then I can do what I want to do. And to make it easy, I'll let you do what you want to do. You do what you want to do, and I'll do what I want to do, and I'll encourage you in doing it because it feels good. And that's what I was saying. You go by how things feel. How things feel. The tragedy is that's crept into the church. We go by how we feel. When the Bible says we're to walk by faith and not by sight. And we are at a time when we better learn to walk by faith and not by sight. Because what you're going to sight <laughs> is going to be deceptive. It's going to look good. The Bible tells us that the Antichrist will perform wonderful miracles by which many will be taken in. This is why it's so important to know who Jesus is. God took on flesh and lived among us. God became specific, tangible. Now there's no question. This is what we'll begin to get into. Now there's no question what God's will is because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I only do the works that I see my Father doing. I only say what my Father says. Jesus came to reveal God. And they, we beheld Him. We beheld God. We could now see God. And what did we see about Him? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. That word is doxa, which means substance. His solidness. The word in the Hebrew for it literally means weightiness. It's the essence, the solidness of who someone is or what something is. It's the weight of it. It's the essence of it. And we beheld His essence, His, his glory, His fullness. All that He is, we beheld. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Don't get humbug on begotten. It just means he came out of the Father. And what do we beheld about him? He was full of grace and truth. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? God says you are the Christ. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. In other words, God says, that's my son. We see now that that son is begotten of God. He's the expression of God and has always existed. That everything in this earth, everything in this realm of existence, that includes the galaxies and all the stars, all of this was created by him and through him. There was not something that was made that was not made through him. And we see that at the appointed time, 
the full expression of God came to this earth and took on flesh and dwelt among us so that we could behold Him. We could now see God. We could now see what God was like. We could now hear clearly what God required. We could now have an example of the righteousness and holiness of God. And see, it was easy. It's easy for us to say, well, God, it's easy for you. You're God. You can't do that. We can't, but we, who are we to do this? So what God did is take on flesh. And the Bible says he was tempted in all ways just as you and I are. Yet he didn't sin. And it says that in Hebrews. Why? So he could become a faithful high priest. What's a high priest do? He represents you to God. It says he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. In Hebrews chapter 5, it says the qualification of a priest under the Old Testament is he first of all had to be a man. I don't mean as opposed to a woman, which he did, but, but he, he had to be a human being so that he could understand the frailty of those he was representing. But he had to be chosen by God because he had to be able to represent man to God. A high priest represented God to man and man to God. In order to do that, he had to be able to bridge that gap. To bridge that gap, he had to know what it was like to be human so that he could be tolerant and patient with those that he was high priest over. But he also had to be able to represent people before God, so he had to be holy. And in the Old Testament, the way the priest became holy was by going through some of the rituals. In the New Testament, he didn't have to go through the rituals because the high priest that came, although he wore flesh and was tempted in every way like you and I, yet he never sinned. And so God took on flesh so that he could touch us and we could touch him so that he could understand you better and so that you could understand him. God took on flesh so that he could become very specific and very tangible. And so we see that Jesus Christ is none other than God himself in human flesh. That's why the question of who he is to you is so important. Is he just some name or figure or is he God to you?